we have been engaged for a few weeks in a series we're calling Dimensions of Hope. And we're trying to get across what is symbolized in the video here, that wherever we are in our life, no matter how arid things may appear to be, there is still the water of hope that can bring God's new life. As we were developing the idea about uh, hope and the dimensions of hope, uh, a phrase kept coming to my mind and I couldn't get it out of my mind. It is the idea of hoping against hope. It sounds kind of irrational, doesn't it? Hoping against hope. And at first I kind of dismissed it and then I thought, where does that phrase come from? Maybe Shakespeare. And what does it mean? And it didn't take me long to figure out that it, it actually comes from the Bible, from the book of Romans. And I'm going to use that as a passage today. But before we do that, I want to tell you a personal story. Something that happened to me a few months ago. I had a vision. Or was it a dream? The Lord seemed to be saying, I'm going to give you a child in your old age. I told Judy, the Lord says, we're going to have another baby. I think she said, where do you get that wee stuff, old man? And then she laughed. But the Lord came through. And a few months later, we celebrated a miracle birth. And actually, those of you who have been around us know that God performed the miracle through our granddaughter, Tiana, delivering her firstborn, uh, K.J. Phillips. And there's the real mama. Probably when I started this, some of you thought of the actual Bible story of God's promise to the aging couple, Abraham and Sarah, and their miracle baby. But before we go into that story, let me tell you a little more about uh, my relationship with uh, Judith. Uh, we are an aging couple, at least I am. And we spent uh, a lot of time together over 63 years, but we've really spent a lot of time together since COVID hit. And all the evening meetings that pastors usually have stopped happening. We spent a lot of time at home discovering everything on Netflix and prime time and all. Oh man, They're, aside from horror movies, which I can't stand, and sci-fi movies, which I can't understand. We've seen every genre of movies. And I found something really interesting. You, this may be a surprise to you, but I'm not a particularly romantic guy. And, and yet, and yet um, I, I found these movies to be great because Judy's on her side and I'm over in my chair. 
And there's a, a, a movie in which a, there's a romantic conversation between the two of them. It's something I wish I'd said. And all I have to say is, Judy, and she gets it. And she, and she laughs and she responds. At first, you know, it was a little, now it's automatic. We just do it. Anytime something comes up um, that I say, I wish I said, I say, Judy, and she gets it. So I really am a romantic guy. I can't remember what film we were watching, and some of you may be able to tell me. Um, but a, a husband and wife couple were about to do something uncharacteristically daring. And he turned to her and said, exactly how crazy are you? And she said, just crazy enough. And then they did whatever it was, and of course, it was the key to the movie. So <clears throat> we're going to turn to the Bible passage with all of this in mind, where we find the words hoping against hope. And the passage is Romans chapter four. We're going to begin reading with verse 13. This is a little tough reading initially, and I'll take time to explain it as we go. But Paul is in a very, a very deep conversation about the history of God's dealing with the Jewish people leading up to the Christ event and now the inclusion of the Gentiles. And he's trying to show that the promise that God made to the Jewish people was really made to all the people of the earth. So that's the argument. Romans 4.13, the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of all of us, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Let's pause there, make sure we're following. So Paul is saying, yes, the Jewish people have the special promise from Abraham. But really, if you go back and look at the promise to Abraham and listen to it with open ears, you'll see that right in that promise was the, the promise that the Gentiles would be included, that Abraham is the father of us all by faith. In verse 17, in the presence of the God in whom he, Abraham, believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Verse 18, here's our phrase. Hoping against hope, he believed that he would become the father of many nations according to what was said, so numerous shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. I want to stop there, verse 19. 
And we're going to look at the Old Testament passages. But here he's reminding us that the promise to Abraham was miraculous from the beginning because he was even older than the one you saw in the picture. And that uh, Sarah was barren. Now, this is not just because of her age, although that was true. But way back in chapter 11 of Genesis, first time we meet Sarah, we're told that she was barren. So it was early in their marriage that they recognized that Sarah could have no children. Verse 20, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This faith challenge to Abraham is purposely uh, an impossibility because he was being asked to have faith against everything that said there was nothing to believe in. He was encouraged to have hope against hope. Now that, I went back and looked in the original language, the, the, the word hope is used twice, it's the same word. And so whatever mystery there is in this, it was there from the beginning as Paul, I think coined this phrase, I haven't heard it, found that it was used earlier. But this idea of hoping against the most you can hope for and then hoping against that. It, it, it's, just, it's just as much as he compares it to life out of death. The challenge is that great. In verse 17 and 19, he refers to life out of death. And that's what this hope against hope is. Paul was, of course, reflecting on this Old Testament story about the one whom God called to begin the new chapter of salvation history uh, by making a unique covenant with one clan of earthly people, the Israelites, the Jews, the descendants of Abraham. When you go home, uh, and, and I'll have to admit, I, I had not really read through these chapters in detail for a number of years, and I found all kinds of surprises. And if you will read chapters 12 through 23 of Genesis, you'll hear the whole story that I'm about to abbreviate to you. <clears throat> Beginning with Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, we see the first promise to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's right there in Genesis 12, 3. This is the first time this promise was made to Abraham, but it was such an astounding promise that God remade it to him over and over again. You'll find it reiterated in chapter 13, verse 14, in chapter 15, the beginning of that chapter, in chapter 18, twice, that covenant promise is made to Abraham again. That you will be not only the father of a great nation, which I will honor and have a covenant with, but also the father of many peoples. 
Sarah, Abraham's wife, is a central part of the Genesis story, beginning with a strange incident we're going to read in chapter 12, beginning with verse 10. They're married for a while. Sarah has not had any children. And uh, in verse 10, we read this very in interesting story. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to reside there as an alien, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, that is, as an alien, remember, he's from another country, and they had borders that were not particularly porous, just like ours. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know well that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Judy, I mean Sarah. <laughs> and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they'll let you live. This is the way Sarah, uh, Abraham was thinking. It was a real threat. Now, there was more to it than this, as we'll probably see in a later chapter. Abraham, he, he and Sarah were not alone. They had a lot of people with them, herds. They were rich people, okay? So the Egyptians might want it to take more than his wife. But this is what Abraham is expressing at this point. They will kill you. Kill me, but they will let you live. So, he says in verse 13, say you are my sister, so that it may go well with me. Okay, Sarah, <laughs> you go into the lion's den <laughs> and leave me alone. <laughs> Just say I'm your brother, and so I'm no threat. Uh, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. When the officials of Sarah saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female slaves, female donkeys, and camels. I don't know whether that's a hierarchy there but it's very strange. In fact, there are so many cultural questions. The difference between whatever that culture was like and our culture, that we really have to be careful about superimposing our values onto what was happening there. For instance, the whole thing of Sarah being held as a hostage. Well, you know if you've watched any period films from England in the centuries, you know, masterpiece theater and all, that uh, marriage was more than just uh, out of romance. Arranged marriages were common, and especially among people of means. So that maybe there's a portion of this we don't understand, that here was a powerful alien group that Pharaoh wanted to make an alliance with by marriage to this woman, Sarah. At any rate, he took her into his household, which probably means that she was part of his harem of women, which probably means that he had sexual relations or at least 
could have had sexual relations with her. We're not told that he didn't. And the implications of what happens next, beginning with verse 17, is that that may have happened. Verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and be gone. Pharaoh gave his men orders concerning him, and they sent him on the way with his wife and all that he had. Very, very strange. And as I indicated, we probably only begin to understand what was happening within that culture. But it is very interesting that Sarah is such an important person in this drama. Uh, this was a world of men, and women didn't matter that much. But Sarah mattered. This reality expressed in chapter 11, verse 30, that she was barren, could not bear children, is a very important theme all the way through. And yet, when the promise was made to Abraham, God wanted to make it clear that the promise was to Abraham and to Sarah. So when he reiterated the covenant, he said, the covenant will be through your progeny by your wife, Sarah. In chapter 17, Abraham said, when you read this, it's kind of interesting. He said, well, Lord, I know you're going to give me an heir and and my relative Eliezer of Damascus, he is technically the one who will inherit my estate, and I'm sure he has a child who can be the heir. The Lord said, no, it's going to be through your wife, Sarah. Abram said, there, Abram laughed there. We're going to see that Sarah laughs later. But it, it just seems so unreal. And then later, and this is probably 25 years later, if we can figure out, now, we're not sure about years because, you know, in, in the early chapters before Noah, people are recorded as living much longer. We don't know what that means. But Methuselah, who is reputed to be the oldest man in the Bible, lived 969 years, according to the text. And uh, uh, that even turns up in the Porgy and Bess. Go home and listen to it. The, uh, the the, the song there. And, uh, but by the time of Noah, of Abraham, a hundred years was a long time. And this uh, reality that he could not bear children yet, and his wife never could bear children, uh, just made him wonder, how can the Lord fulfill this? Well, Sarah decided she knew how, and uh, she told her maidservant, Hagar, okay, I'm going to give you to my husband because he needs an heir, a male heir, and he can do it through you. And she had Ishmael, and Abram said, we solved it, Lord. And the Lord said, no, Abram. I said, we're going to do it through Sarah. And so I'm going to ask you to turn now to chapter 18 and verse 9 to pick up the story. 
So some visitors came. They're described as three travelers. And Abram is in his tent. These guys don't have a place to stay. And the Middle Eastern hospitality caused him to invite them and to give them a meal and to stay. So in verse 9, they said to him, where is your wife, Sarah? And he said, there in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season. And your wife, Sarah, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind him. Now listen, it's an important verse just to summarize all the realities we've talked about verse 11 now Abraham and Sarah were old advanced in age it had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of a woman that is she was post menstrual and probably by decades so Sarah laughed to herself inside the tent saying to herself, after I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abram, now notice, we've been talking about three visitors. Now all of a sudden, the Lord. Was the Lord one of the three visitors? Or was the Lord, were these messengers from? We're not told because it goes back to the visitors again. It's very mysterious. But clearly, Abraham recognized that the Lord was speaking. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, laugh and say, I shall indeed, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? That's a great question, isn't it? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time, I will return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. But the ne Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, oh, yes, you did. <laughs> I, I, I love it. <laughs> oh, you did too. And Sarah laughed. Sarah laughed could be the title of this sermon because that's an expression of hope against hope. Sarah's laughter is fascinating and people have studied it. In fact, I went online and did a search and I found two modern organizations with the name Sarah's Laughter as their title. And the first one I found is a faith-based Christian organization that supports couples struggling with infertility or the death of a baby. See, they, they got something in Sarah's laugh. They realized it wasn't a lighthearted, flippant laugh, but it was a dark laugh. It was a laugh of hopelessness. And the second listing I found under Sarah's Laughter. It's the title of a book. It's by an author who is from Sri Lanka by the name of Vinod Ramachandra who is well known among 
Christian collegiate circles, intervarsity, and inter, inter, international fellowship of evangelical students. He's, he's a trained scientist, but now also a theologian. He's a very good thinker. And his book, Sarah's Laughter, interesting, I read the reviews. I have not read the book yet. But one of the reviews says, Sarah's Laughter provides a reflection on suffering that is deeply personal and both theologically and philosophically astute. And in his book, he goes through modern calamities, such things as what we call natural disasters, and why people suffer for no apparent reason. And that's what he entitles Sarah's Laughter. And one of the things that was quoted by him, which I really liked, was the idea that ironically, we who follow and obey and love God and are committed to him, are we have nowhere to go to complain but him. And we say, why, Lord, as the book of Job does and as, as the Psalms do in many places. And we almost accuse God while we're embracing him for dear life. As he says, we're complaining to God while we're still clinging to him. Because he represents hopelessness, but at the same time, he's our only hope. Sarah laughed. Seems to me these two modern usages reflect the fact that her laughter was not flippant, casual, or superficial, but it was dark and ironic laughter. So in the patriarchy of the Old Testament, we find some interesting clues, and Sarah is one of them, that women are far more powerful and far more important to the biblical story than most of those student guys with heads on who were, who were studying the scripture and talking about male headship and everything. They zip by Sarah's laughter. They miss the profundity of it, but God doesn't. God doesn't. Sarah's laughter is just like that time I turned to Judy after watching the film and I said to her, exactly how crazy are you? And she said, just crazy enough. You think we get each other? How crazy was Sarah? Just crazy enough. In Genesis chapter 21, there's kind of a climax of all of this. Beginning with verse one. The Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. That's pretty simple, isn't it? <laughs> Say, the Lord did for Connie what he asked her to do. No, the Lord did for Connie as he said, as he promised. Bottom line, that's what we have to get into our minds. He allows us to do all our begging and all our complaining and all our impossible, hopeless 
talk. He allows us to do that, but we're still going to hold on to him. In verse 2, Sarah conceived and bore Abram a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to his son, whom Sarah bore to him. And Abram circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abram was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. This Sarah, who was beautiful enough to get into Pharaoh's household, that caused problems. Years later, probably, if we read the scripture correctly, about 25 years later, which in my mind, that means that Sarah was probably at that point at least 60. A similar incident happened in another country where the king Abimelech saw Abraham and Sarah and wanted and took Sarah into his, into his household because Abraham once again said, she's my sister. That happened again. But Sarah, you know, she was not some little wispy beauty at that point. I bet Sarah was laughing then. It, it, it's interesting how it all broke down because Abraham really waffled. You see the weakness of the patriarchy there. Because Abram then, he said, no, I, I said she was my sister, and yes, but because she's my husband, my brother's granddaughter or something, you know, so she is related, but she is my wife. That too. All of which is very different from modern culture. But this point in Sarah's life, she has her baby, <laughs> this old couple older than the ones you saw in the early films and then Sarah said in verse 6 chapter 21 Sarah said God has brought laughter for me everyone who hears will laugh with me <laughs> who has the last laugh and she said who would have ever said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Take that, old man. <laughs> now, Sarah was not perfect. And we read about her interaction with Hagar, the handmaid, and her son, and her unfairness toward her. So they're both human all the way through this. But there's a moment when Sarah rose above that and hoped against hope. There's a moment. There's a moment. And though these are just moments. They don't happen all the time. I was trying to think of examples of this and just my mind was free associating. I, I, I settled on a, a weird kind of experience in my childhood. There, our church was very much into missions and we prayed for a number of missionaries who had actually been sent out by the church and I knew their families. And so as a, as a boy, when we prayed for this man, I'm trying to remember his name, but who was ministering in West Pakistan, 
among the Muslims. Now it's Pakistan because East Pakistan is Bangladesh. But then there were two Pakistans. And West Pakistan was harshly Muslim. There was, had been very little Western influence. And he was trying to carve out a gospel witness, win converts and establish a church here. We prayed for him as I was a child, as I became a teenager. And then he died. And I remember in the report about his life, the remark was made that the number of converts from his ministry in West Pakistan was zero. As a child, I don't know why that stuck with me, but it was like a kind of a moment of hopelessness. Um, and yet, this man and his family felt God had called them and dedicated his life to this. I, I don't know the answer, but that's the first thing that came to my mind. There's, there's a kind of ironic laughter, I think, that went on in my mind. And then I was reading some stuff and I found, uh, I found a, 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 site, or a, a phrase that I'd never heard before and it's called the hypomanic edge. And it talked about investors looking for entrepreneurs who are just manic enough. How crazy are you? Just crazy enough. They're looking for investors who will take risks. Well, that kind of rang a bell. God is too. And then I found a TED talk where a man talked about this specifically from within uh, a, a manic depressive diagnosis and how he saw that his sickness had become an asset in his life as he claimed that. And the, the talk coined a phrase again that I'd never heard before. He said, my mental illness became my mental skillness. Wow. And then it fit in with a quote I found from Steve Jobs, who made a lot of money. And here's what he said. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They are not fond of rules. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them, but the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They push the human race forward, and while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius because the ones who are crazy enough to think they can change the worlds are the ones who do. He wrote that in 1997. I don't know whether he still believes that. Hoping against hope. Hoping against hope. There are some times when God seems to be asking you and me, just how crazy are you? Are we ready to answer just crazy enough? Will your spontaneous laughter, who, me, Lord, you got, you got the wrong person. Will your spontaneous laughter still hide a, a deeper answer 
of yes, Lord, I'm, 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 I'm just crazy enough to follow you even when things don't seem to be going right. Even when all the evidence goes in the opposite direction. I still remember that woman. Just crazy enough to follow and worship a God I don't fully understand. Just crazy enough to hold on to him tightly when I feel threatened by the situation he's put me in. Just crazy enough to hope against hope in the most hopeless moments. Our Lord, we thank you that there are so many examples in the Bible of frail, weak people who were used by you in surprising ways. There are also examples of gifted people who have all kinds of abilities and have blown it. So we would rather be the people, by your grace, who are just crazy enough. Help us, when that moment comes, to hope against hope. In Jesus' name, amen. We meet in Altadena every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Pacific, both in the sanctuary and on YouTube. Most other events will be starting up soon, but if you need prayer now, please reach out to us at altabapprayer at aol.com. And again, as always, we pray God's blessings on you this week.